Good morning. So confession, I've never even seen The Bachelorette, The Bachelor. I guess the new one is The Golden Bachelor, Bachelorette. I missed out on all that. I don't think I've ever seen any reality show except for one time my daughter was home sick and she was watching Hillbilly Hand Fishing. You guys ever seen that? So I don't know what it was, but four episodes into it, man, all of a sudden I wanted to go dive in and catch a fish with my hand. So that's about, that's about all I got for reality show other than ESPN, pardon the interruption, and uh, fly, fly Eagles Fly. What, is this Steeler territory? Is that why the reaction? Yeah. Mix- yeah. All right. All right. So I have to figure something out before I get going, is that I need to look at the screen, and I'm guessing if I stand, right, is this video, do I, am I on the video, if I'm here? If I turn around, would that be rude? All right, we'll give, it a, we'll give this a try. Give it a try. So when I was a kid, like middle school one, I just dreamed of being a teacher. I don't remember not wanting to be a teacher. And so the problem was I wasn't very good at school, which is kind of ironic. And I didn't know at the time, I didn't find out until I was in my 30s, that I not only had a severe learning disability, my learning style was very different and doesn't work well in any kind of traditional school setting. And so I didn't know that at the time, but I still wanted to be a teacher. And my family, we didn't have money, I didn't have scholarships, didn't have good grades, so I went into the military, which pretty much everybody in my family did, to get money uh, to pay for college. So I come out of all that stuff and I have to go to community college um, and I have to take a placement test, a non-college credit, the placement in English and math, and I couldn't pass them, which meant my teaching career ended shortly after I got out of the Navy. And so I was stranded. I didn't know what to do. And so in, in a certain way, uh, that story would be, uh, as we get into this story, would be an example of somebody who was marginalized, whose, whose experiences, whose life was just a little bit outside the norm, and that under my own power, there was nothing I could do to pass these classes. I did not have the ability within me. And unfortunately, the school system, for some reason, uh, thinks somebody who, has to, <laughs> who wants to teach history needs to learn how to do algebra, which doesn't, you know, didn't make sense to me then and probably still doesn't today. If you're in the educational system, you probably know what I'm talking about and could, uh, could, could preach, preach a whole other sermon on the topic. And so the idea is that in big ways, small ways, most of us have kind of felt like, you know, we're not quite fitting in in the inside, and we, we have to live life from the margins. And I think this story of Ruth captures that. This word marginalized comes from the idea that it's a metaphor from like that space around a page or space in a book where you take notes and all that, and it's not quite in the body of it. Um, and it gives people this experience, whether it's an individual person or a people group where you just live on the fringe. You're viewed as an outsider. You're viewed as not normal. I mean, that's, that's what I've had my whole life. Can't, and my mommy, can't you just do things the normal way? I wish I could, but it's not the way my brain is wired. Sometimes it's not even a reality. It's just how we're perceived. And I have found for myself, if there's times when I'm marginalized for real, then it's very easy to jump to conclusions and other things that they kind of smell a little bit the same, you know, when you're treated, treated that way. And again, I think that the story of Ruth is really uh, about a marginalized person and how, how God's strategic plan for redemption kind of took care of her and her family. And so it's this intersection of redemption, where there's a, redemption's a, a two-sided coin where God redeems us, and in this story, it's not even spiritually, it's really materialistically. Helped this lady get home, food, helped her family. Um, but there is the part where God redeems, but the other side of the coin when they're tied together is that he has a plan for the redeemed to be used to help redeem the people in the world that are living in the margins. This story the ancient has a very different way than what he's asked the church to do in today's world. And I think Ruth is an intersection 
an intersection of, of, of that story of, of redemption where we've been Ruth's, we've lived on the margin, but then as God's people, we're also called to be Boaz to care for, in different ways, the Ruth's that are in our families and in our neighborhoods. It just dawned on me that you guys were pointing not at the camera that I have to stay in, but the TV that I can read without having to turn around. Thanks for that. Just, again, a little slow one up, but I got it. I got it. It took me, it took me a second. <laughs> So I'm going to read Ruth 3 for us. So if you have a Bible or a phone and you want to do that, um, I'm going to read it or if you just want to listen. But I just want to give the, the broader context because I don't have a list of top 10 weird stories in the Bible. But if I did, this chapter right here, and I thank your pastor for it, is one of the weirder ones to have to try to figure out not only what in the world was actually happening at the feet at the tent, um, but then how in the world do we apply this like 4,000 years later, you know, when like, you know, like the story is, hey man, this guy had to marry this lady because a family member died and that's just the way it was done then. I don't think we're going to go that route today, uh, you know, unless the spirit moves a completely different way than we had planned. So here's Ruth 3, Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. That's the goal of this whole chapter. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, and note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. So when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer of your family, there is, one, uh, there is another who is more closely related than I am. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. So she laid his feet until morning. She got up anyone could be, uh, before anybody could be recognized and said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Well, then she told everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So there's our story for the day. I've had to do a lot of research to figure out what this stuff means. I think I could probably preach four sermons. I only do one today. Um, this, this, is a, this, is a, this is jam-packed with a lot of really interesting, strange things. And then how do we, how do, what do we do with this today? So I broke this into three kind of questions that I want to ask, what does this passage, what is it actually saying? It's foreign to my ears. And then what does it mean? What did it mean to the people then? And what does it mean to us? And then how do we 
is that people all these years later put some hands and feet on this and apply it in our neighborhood without going out and marrying our sister-in-laws. <laughs> so what does this say? So it's, I broke it down into three parts. Naomi had a plan. Now, if I was Ruth, I would have had some questions about the plan. Because the plan was, first, you know, clean up, put a little perfume. You know, I, okay, I got that. And get the eyebrows done, flip the hair a little bit. You know, you get ready to go make a presentation. In my mind, I'm thinking, I'm finding out where he sleeps so I can know in the morning that I'm going to get him first thing in the morning and ask him, hey, would you be our guardian redeemer? It makes sense to me, right? She goes, no, we're not going to do that. What you're going to do is you're going to find out where he's sleeping. And then after he's had dinner and some drinks, falls asleep, I want you to go lay at his, excuse me? Yeah, I want you to lay at his feet. Hmm. And then the last line of that little part of the story is very interesting. He'll know what to do. He'll know what, that's the plan? We're going to wait for this guy, Boaz? to let us know the next step of the plan when I spend all night at his feet. That's the story. So I'm thinking if I was Ruth, I would have been like, man, when I said, you know, um, your family's my family, you know, your people are my people, your God is my God, your plan is not my plan. We've got to come up with a better plan. This is a lousy plan. And apparently it was more custom than in today for servants, that's what she was, to lay at people's feet, you know, I guess to keep warm or whatever. I don't know. Some, some commentaries think there was maybe some... Uh, a little something, something else going on, and that doesn't seem to be the case. That's not how they acted, and frankly, the Bible, when it wants to get uh, R-rated or X-rated, it has no problems doing that. Um, it didn't in this story, so I'm assuming that she was literally just laying at his feet. And so that was the plan. So how does the plan work? He finds out Boaz actually didn't know what to do. He came up with the second part of the plan. And then what she said to him was, you know, kind of like, put your blanket around us, so like symb- symbology of we want to be under the covering of your family, and we want you to take care of us. But it wasn't maybe like a marriage proposed like in a romantic way that we might be thinking today. It was more of, I need you to engage in the law that's been given us of how God has said to care for widows and people in need. That's what she was calling forth for him to do. And Boaz's politics he, he, he lived according to the politics, to the governing rules of the day. For these, this group, they're only like a, a two generations off of Moses. Boaz's mom was Rahab the prostitute who was uh, in the city of Jericho, Jericho, that, that story. He's one generation off that. So, so Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that's their constitution. It's not just a religious thing. It's, it's how they dealt with health care. It's how they dealt with criminal justice. And it's how they dealt with situations like this. And she was calling him to live according to the law of the land. This was a theocracy. There's no, there was no king. There's no president. There's no senate. There's none of that stuff. It's just a group of people, a small tribe, that would judge accordingly to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, books that we don't find very exciting today. In fact, we find them confusing, right? Which ones do we pick? To, to live out or not live out? Do you have hamburgers to be like shrimp? Well, then you're not living according to Leviticus. Shame, shame, shame. So he lived it out. He knew what to do. Still leaves us the question, what in the world does this mean? Which I have found very, very tricky to figure out. And so I've done some digging. So I want to give you just a quick kind of review of how I've done my digging. So when I get to the conclusions of what I've come up with, oh, that's how we got there. Whether you agree or not, it's one of the story, but at least you know the path of how I got there. So one thing as I've gotten older, 
My interpretation of scripture is now more big picture, like the whole forest. I look for themes in the whole story and interpret it that way, versus like just picking a verse, one like sentence, and trying to figure out what that means. And I think a lot of us are often guilty of taking one little verse that's way out of context, and that becomes our life verse, or that becomes the one rule that we expect people to live, and we would never do that with a movie. Like just take one sentence, and that's it, and assume to know what the movie's about. But we do that with the Bible a lot. And so part of this is there's a huge theme that's a thread that weaves its way through Scripture where Ruth is really a, almost like a folktale or a, a parable about that theme. And it connects through, and it connects from Moses all the way through her to King David all the way to Jesus, family-wise, as well as the, the thread of redemption. Another way that I try to interpret, and this takes digging and it's very hard, is to ask the question, what would have meant to the original hearers? Lots of times we just interpret it in our world, you know, so we see the Last Supper from our perspective of of how we do it, and this is very different than what it would have been like in Jesus' time, but how they lived their life in that time was very different, and how would they have understood these passages? We have to consult consult scholars or or consult different people who are experts in that, because I have no clue what it means to, for a servant to lay at somebody's feet and wait for him to know what to do. And the last one is, there are Batman skills and there are Spider-Man skills. Apologies to the people who are DC or Marvel and really get offended with both of them at the same time. But for the sake of a sermon illustration. Batman skills are the skills that, oh, it's not, I don't have a superhero skill set to understand the Bible. I have to get books. I have to consult scholars. I got to talk to rabbis to figure out what this means in the Jewish. I got to have all these things at my Batman belt so I can do this stuff. Where Spider-Man is a superhero. He has like a spidey sense. He can do things that are, are supernatural in a sense. And so we have that as well. So part of the interpretation is digging through the, the minutia, the history, all these things, but then also using our spidey sense, the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us interpret what it meant then and how do we apply it today. And these are difficult things. I'll give you one quick example of how difficult it is when we try to translate something maybe literally, but it doesn't make sense in what the true meaning is. My son debated in high school, and him and his partner, they had a huge argument of how they're going to do the course of this debate. Huge argument, major conflict, to the point where they were just going to break up their debate team and not even bother with it. And so I said, what happened? He goes, well, we made a decision. I went and did it. Well, what did she say? He said, she said, fine. And I said, Okay, and she said, anything else? He says, yeah, fine, whatever. Hmm. He didn't know that fine, whatever, does not mean fine and whatever. She even gave the hand wave, which like exponentially uh, makes it even worse. I said, son, she didn't mean fine, whatever. Then why did she say it? I said, son, I've been married almost 30 years. And I can't tell you an exact translation of fine whatever. I know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean fine whatever. It's somewhere between a double dog dare and a prophetic utterance of apocalyptic measures if you have the audacity to do whatever you said and she said fine whatever. He says that makes no sense. I didn't say it has to make sense. I'm just telling you that's what it means. That's what it doesn't mean. So... Sometimes when we come to interpret Scripture, the literal meaning makes a lot of sense to us. But it has nothing to do with what the Bible is actually saying. Because it's a long time ago. Or it was figurative. Or it was poetry. And it takes a while. If we just do it on the surface value, sometimes the literal translation is the wrong one. Sometimes it is the right one. We have to, we have to figure those things out. It's very difficult. 
even in, even in our world. My grandfather is 101 years old. Can you imagine being 101? My grandfather's been retired my whole life. So to me, 101 is one thing, but the fact that he was born in 1922, he tells stories of remembering listening to Babe Ruth on the radio. Can you imagine? He is a survivor of World War II. He was on a ship in the Pacific that sunk because it was bombed by kamikaze pilots. I mean, this guy's got some stories, and he will tell them all. So if I said to my grandfather in 1922, you're going to have a cell phone, a what? A phone, a what? A thing, okay, that's going to connect to outer space, to satellites, to what? <laughs> Planes weren't even like a thing really then, you know? These things in outer space, okay, my thing in my pocket is going to connect to my thing in outer space, so when you drive your car, a what? A car. I'm fine with my horse and buggy. That's what they drove. He had a dirt floor. They brought in water for their Saturday bath, and they all took baths in a row. So at the end, it was so dirty, you didn't want to lose the baby in the bathwater. That's, that's this guy's life. He jokes with us. He doesn't even remember the Great Depression because they were so poor, it didn't actually affect them. So you're going to get this thing in your pocket that connects to this thing in outer space. It's going to help your horse and buggy go on the interstate highway. The what? The paved road. The what? The road to get from here, I already know everywhere I need to go because I've never been five miles from my house. It's a completely different world. If I asked my grandfather what a CD is, what would he tell me? It's a certificate of deposit that has low interest rate. You ask somebody from my generation, a CD is a, is a, a compact disc. You ask my kids, they have no clue what a certificate of deposit <laughs> or, a, or a compact disc is. If you ask my grand, and I've done this, if you ask my grandfather what booty is, he says it's a pirate, tre a pirate uh, treasure. If you ask him what gay is, he goes like it's a yabba dabba doo, a happy old gay old time. My generation thinks gay is homosexuality. A uh, younger generation just thinks gay is stupid. Not being gay, but the word, uh, it's gay. Words change, concepts change, and this is my family. Same country, same language. So how in the world do we translate Ruth from the Bronze Age? You know what the hot technology of the day was then? Writing. They had just come up with writing. They just figured out to put the wheel on something. It had been used for sewing. That's how long ago this is. She's like three generations off of Moses coming out of Egypt. So it's how do you fathom that these different concepts. So this idea of guardian redeemer was their social security, was their Medicaid, was their retirement funds all wrapped together to provide for people as they got old. They had to have a bunch of kids because there wasn't jobs, there wasn't currency, there wasn't all these things that we think of today for them to just survive. Oh, so what does all this mean for us? There's two words in this text that I would like to focus on. And the first is redeemed. And again, it means a little bit different than how we use it. And then it's connected to this idea of guardian redeemer, which is a thoroughly different concept than anything we have in our culture. So redeemed is a major theme of the Bible. It's used 23 times just in Ruth. It's used 132 times in Old Testament and 25 in the New Testament. So this is, this is a major story arc in the Bible. Something to pay attention to and to help us interpret the rest of this story because that's really what the story is about. It's about God's redemption and how one group of people applied 
his law, his rule, his way of living a kingdom life in the Old Testament. Um, and then we'll try to translate that into what we're doing today. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean cashing in on your uh, thousand Bed Bath & Beyond coupons. What do you do with them now? Like, I mean, they, they lasted forever, right? And the store closes. Another question for another day. Sorry. To buy someone or something back from enslavement. In that day and age, if, if the man in the house died and you didn't have any property, uh, one way to survive was to voluntarily become a slave. And redemption was literally buying them back to repurchase. It's closer to our word ransom, which we don't use often, thankfully, because our kids don't get kidnapped. Probably because they know we won't want ransom. <laughs> the threat is gone. So it's a little closer to this concept. If you haven't ever seen this movie, this guy was a Green Beret, CIA operative, not just like a book guy, he was the guy that went out and killed people. And some poor schmuck <laughs> kidnapped his daughter. Wrong guy, right? And he says, I don't know who you are, I don't know what you want. But if you want a ransom, that's what he says, it's the same concept as in the Bible, I don't have any money for you. And then the famous line of the movie, but, but what I do have is a particular set of skills that I've acquired over a long career. And so God would say to ransom, I have a particular set of skills that I will do whatever it takes to redeem my people, to redeem a lost sheep. I will send my son if I have to. That's how the story goes. So it's closer to that concept than, you know, cash in on a coupon or a gift card. That's how we use redeem. You know, like if you got, you know, all your tokens lined up, you can go get a stuffed animal at the, at the fair or wherever, or if you got coupons or gift cards. And, and, and that's in the right neighborhood, but it, it's more powerful than that. It's actually taking someone from slavery and setting them free. So this guardian redeemer is attached to that. They use this word redeemer. It's a family member. So according to the law of Moses, there's in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those who farm the land by law had to leave some crops on their fields for the poor to reap harvest for them. So what Boaz was doing for Ruth and Naomi wasn't necessarily out of the kindness of his heart. That's just what people who had means were supposed to do. Now, he was kind. He gave her a little bit more, you know, and protected her with safety. That wasn't. He went above and beyond the duty, but that was the law of the land. That was God's strategic plan to help poor people. So to protect vulnerable people, God made a provision called the leveret marriage. That's this type of marriage that, that Ruth was proposing, where the nearest male relative of the widow's late, last, late husband marries the widow and cares for her. So that's one part. It gets crazier. The guardian redeemer is a legal term for the one with obligation to redeem a relative in serious difficulty. Whole community, that, that was their obligation. And here's what they had to do. They'd redeem the family property that may have changed hands. So Naomi's husband had land, and when they left and went to Moab, it changed hands. And so this guardian redeemer wasn't just supposed to marry Ruth. He was supposed to buy back the family's land. If the person was sold into slavery, the redeemer would buy back the freedom. And he would also provide an heir for the... This is getting a little bit weird. He was expected to provide an heir, not for himself, but for the family that he was redeeming, so that that family line would stay intact. 
So here's a question that I have. If, if we're proposing to people to take the Bible literally, what do we do with this verse? When we tell people we think that our society should be more having biblical marriages, <laughs> that's one of the options. No thanks. I don't know who would be more disappointed, me, my sister-in-law, or my wife. It would just be horrible. It would be horrible. <laughs> so there's two coins in this story. I believe most of us, if not all, are Ruth. We need redemption from something. Obviously, spiritually, true. Materially, at some point in our time, maybe we needed some help that we couldn't do on our own. But then there are times as, as the church, as a group of people, or maybe individuals or even our family, we're called upon. You don't call it guardian redeemer, but essentially that's what we're being asked to do, is to take care of somebody that can't take care of themselves, for whatever reason. It, it, it could, some of it could be their fault. Some of it might not be. Most of the time it's not. There's both of those sides to redemption, the redemptive story. How are we called to help those who are living on the fringe, they're outsiders, they're the other? Whatever that means, it's different. I, I live in Washington, D.C., so my context is very different than, than here. This theme weaves its way through the Bible. I have a couple verses that tie to Ruth's story as well as this theme of redemption. Here's the literal law that they're, they're trying to live out. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. That by itself is odd. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son shall, uh, she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Ooh, that's an odd passage. That doesn't show up in devotions, I don't think, very often. This is the law of Moses, that these guys, remember, they're a couple generations off of, of the literal giving of the Ten Commandments. And this is how God sought to provide for people on the outside. Ruth, she's from another country, another religion, doesn't have anything. And that's what they're enacting. What does, what does God think about groups that don't live this out? And there's a passage in Ezekiel where Ezekiel translates or, or uh, interprets what happened in the city of Sodom. If you're familiar with the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was destroyed by God. And the reason I bring it up is that's where Ruth was from. That, those cities are in Moab. That's where she's from. And here was what God had to say about why he destroyed that city. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. It's not how I've heard the story of Sodom. It's a little different rendering. They were haughty and did detestable things before me, therefore I did away with them, as you have seen. This was Ruth's people. They were viewed as haughty and overfed and didn't care for people. And this system is still, Boaz is supposed to take care of her. Hmm. And there's Jesus. This is a passage where he reads what his mission is. It's his first sermon in church in his hometown where they kicked him out and tried to stone him. I mean, it didn't go well. He quotes Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's actually quoting from Isaiah, who's quoting from Leviticus. The year of the Lord's favor is this thing called the year of Jubilee in Leviticus, where the whole organization, the whole system, the whole country 
after so many years, would just forgive the debts of everyone and forgive uh, and let, uh, let, let slaves go free. So it's weaving its way, and, and Ruth is like Jesus' grandmother to like, the, I don't know, like a thousand years later. It's like all, she's, she's part of the, the Christmas story. And then there's Jesus' half-brother, James, who becomes the pastor of the, true, the church in Jerusalem that we find in Acts. And here's his definition of true religion. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So this theme of redemption, where God saves us from our sins, is all through the Bible. I don't think anybody will argue with me on that, at least not in church. But what's tied to it, that flip side of the coin, is that God has a plan for the redeemed to redeem the poor all, all the way through. Now, I know some people would say, man, especially if I'm from Washington, man, why, is it, why do we always have to get political with stuff in church? And so here would be my argument to that. This is what I think the church should do. If I was to say this is what the government would do, then you have a case that this is a political, and this is not. In fact, part of my challenge is for, uh, for the church, we've, we've kind of rendered ourselves to the sideline on a lot of things. Like in our country, our history, colleges were started by churches. Hospitals were started by churches. Now they're like corporate entities that, that make a lot of money, right? Before public schools, who ran, church, who ran schools? Ch churches did. Churches provided daycare in communities long before daycare was around. And so there's things that we've done over time that, that it, we've kind of just given it to somebody else. And so I'm not at all, hopefully, you don't hear I'm making some political, so I'm not. I don't even, even though I live there, I don't really care about that stuff. I care about a, a church being, being Christian, being God's people who are part of the redemptive story as agents of redemption, not, not just receivers of it, not just consumers of it. So how in the world do we apply this to, in today's world? How do we take these things that are as old as the Ten Commandments and in the nation of Israel were viewed as equal to those through the story of Jesus where he said not to just love our neighbors as ourselves. He said I have a new command, right? To love others as he's loved us. Well, that's a whole other level. To today's world, how do individuals, how do groups, how does this church have the audacity to try to apply Ruth 3. So I have a couple ideas. I don't have like specific ideas of what to do as much as broad categories of how to think through this. So my one way of interpreting what this means, I've shared this at the beginning, was to what did the original hearers hear from this? And so ancient rabbis, they, they believed that Ruth was written to teach us a lesson in Gimelet Hasadim. Now, I know some of you were thinking when you woke up this day, man, I just want to learn a little bit more about Gimelet Hasadim. You are lucky today because that's what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> so what in the world is that? So this is how ancient Jews interpreted Ruth. It was all about this topic. Acts of loving kindness, which they believe is an attribute of God and, and is, kind of runs deeply with their definition of redemption. When it's imitated by those who give loving kindness towards others, especially those in need. So their interpretation is that maybe the book could be called Boaz because it's as much about him and what he was doing as it was what Ruth was doing. So I don't think we're going to apply the law of Leviticus in any context today, but how do we take the theme of it and all these years later put it into our context to be able to think through how do we live out this gimlet 
to Sodom. This act of loving kindness that God's given us, so now that we have it, not to just keep, but be able to give to the next person. Another quote, and I didn't realize this until the study comes from a Jewish philosopher. It's a famous quote. I thought it was more of a modern American thing. It's from the 12th century. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. And that was this guy's response to this idea of loving kindness, that if all we're doing is giving stuff, we don't really help. We help for a minute, but how do we teach people to fish? I've learned to fish this summer. Uh, learning how to fish is not very easy. Anybody fish here? Tying a knot at your house is way different than uh, next to the water uh, on a windy day. And I have found tying it in a, ki a kayak floating down a river while my pole is longer than the boat is next to impossible. <laughs> so teaching a person to fish isn't necessarily easy, uh, but that's an idea of what we could do. And so I've taken that concept and kind of going to form an outline for us to think through about how we as a church can do ministries in those categories. So giving a person to fish is literally the ministry of relief. You know, many like soup kitchens, a lot of churches have a one day where they give out diapers or give out food or give out things. Those are, that's a pretty normal thing. Indirectly uh, involves directly supplying whatever when a person has a need. No strings attached. We're not going to teach anything. We're not going to help do anything else. You need food, we'll give food. That's it. It's a legitimate ministry that we, that we, that we often take part of. The next one would be what I call individual development. That, that would be a ministry where we're teaching people stuff. We're not just giving fish. We're teaching people. And so again, as a person, a volunteer somewhere, as a church to be set up a ministry, relational ministries that empower a person to improve their physical, their emotional, intellectual, relational, social status. And an interesting thing with Ruth, there's not any mention of salvation or anything about spiritual care. It's all about material, physical things. It's not saying that we shouldn't do that. It's just saying that's what the story is about. So this next one would be these next two are things I've kind of added to the fishing, fishing thing. is community development. If I don't have a fishing pole... Or if I don't have the right lures, that's one thing I've learned. If I don't have the right lures, the lures that somebody gave me were the kind that bounce along the bottom. You just kind of reel them in slow. They don't work in a kayak. I found that out the hard way because when they bounce along the bottom, they get stuck way back there when my boat's going this way. Would have been nice. And the guy I went with that was supposed to teach me how to fish finally gives me the right line. I start catching fish as opposed to rocks. So if we don't have the right equipment, I might know how to do something. But I don't have the equipment. I'm not going to do it. My kayak flipped over on me. I've never gotten into a kayak other than at the boat ramp. So when I jumped with all my might to get out of the water up to here, guess what I did? I rolled the kayak twice. And when I finally got in the kayak, man, if, if any of you were there, I made your day. There was a group of people camping on the, on the side. They gave me a round of applause when I finally made it in. So there's teaching, but then there's, then there's teaching on the other aspects of it that sometimes we need to do. And all that to say is, sometimes when we're teaching people things that we just know intuitively, we need to be a little more patient about it. An example would be one thing we're working with is we're partnering with Habitat for Humanity to maybe convert some of our space into housing, because affordable housing is a tough thing. Where in, in a city, uh, in, in, in rural parts, Habitat for Humanity does like a sweat equity thing where they have people work on the house. Well, they found in the cities nobody has tools, nobody knows how to do it, but nobody knows even how to care for a house because they've rented their whole life. And so they've moved to where they're teaching and equipping families how to handle things like the air conditioning filter or how to, how to use a dishwasher. Most people don't know you can't just dump a bunch of coffee, you know, like all kinds of things like that. So they spent time teaching them how to maintain a house. We're probably in more rural areas. Those things might already be known, and people have the skills to actually build it. So different contexts, we would do different methods. And this last one, 
Uh, re, re, uh, so instead of, instead of just teaching her how to cook, we, we've taught her how to cook in a way to make a living, Build, building blocks within the community. Got a little caught up in my fishing story. Sorry about that. And last one's advocacy, making sure that people uh, have access to the pond, transforming unfair political, economic, educational, environmental, cultural institutions and systems. There's all kinds of weird rules in societies to, to allow some people in and some people out. I just learned this this week. We were talking about it around our dinner table, but have you ever noticed, even in small towns all across America, there's almost always like a Chinese restaurant, and then there's a Chinese person that works at the laundromat. You ever notice that? It doesn't matter where you go. And we were like, why is that? And what we found out is a very dark story in our history. Is that a lot of Chinese people came and helped build the railroad or part of the gold rush in the mid-1800s. And then in 1880, it became illegal for a Chinese person to have citizenship in the United States. And that didn't go away until the 40s. Did you, I didn't know that. It was illegal for them to become a citizen all the way up to the 40s. And then what I found out was the reason that they're in those restaurants and in those dry cleaners was because the rules of the day, whether they're formal or informal, I'm not sure, they weren't allowed to work or own a business that was viewed as something that a man would do, where it was deemed that cooking and laundry was something for women to do, and so they were stuck in those two businesses, and that, that a lot of immigration came through those types of businesses, and that's all they could do. So somehow, even though they were marginalized, they figured out how to be successful in spite of a system that wasn't too friendly. Man, I was interested. I never knew any of that. But that would be an example of how do, are there people out there who the laws, informal or not formal, uh, are, are set up almost against them. Like in my case, there was no law to keep poor Brian and his uh, uh, mental handicapped away from teaching. It's just the rules where you had to know these things regardless of what you taught. And so I was banned, in a sense, from being able to teach. Hmm, how do we transform those things and help people out? You're probably thinking, man, this guy's teaching us. He doesn't even know how to do algebra. So here's a couple ideas. I'm not telling you to do these ideas. They're just ones that are a little more passionate for me. But the examples would be, are there ways to provide relief? Are there ways to provide individual development? Are there ways for community development, giving people stuff to do stuff with? And then are there some of us that might be more passionate to do things to make it more fair so people have access to stuff? So here would be one example with veterans. It's, my, I have a lot of veterans in my family, so it's something I'm interested in which is often the case with things that God calls us to. It's usually something we're connected to and passionate about. It's not rocket science. It's, it's, it's something we're passionate about. Um, do I think mothers against drunk driving is a good thing? Absolutely. I'm not a mom, and none of my kids have been killed, by, so it's not something I'm super passionate about, though I think it's a good thing. Veterans, I am. Again, I'm not telling you got to do this. Just an idea how this could get played out. So the way I provide relief, what does this guy need? He needs somebody to listen to his stories for two reasons. One, his family's already heard him ten times, and they don't come around anymore. And so he decided just to interact with him. I don't have to do anything fancy. I'm not going to provide health care. I'm not going to give him money, rides, shots, nothing. I'm just going to go hang out, play little cards, shoot the breeze, hear the stories, reminisce about days gone by. That's all. Just providing relief. What's he need? He needs a friend. I can be a friend. Another example would be individual development. A lot of veterans need counseling. It's a huge transition from that world to civilian life. And then if somebody is in combat... It's, it's a whole other thing. It's like living in a video game and then the boringness of life or the, I can't even, uh, I had a friend, he came back from the Middle East and he didn't have any post-traumatic stress until he went to a parade with his kid and all of a sudden there was somebody up on a roof taking pictures and it shut him down. It just shut him down. He wasn't expecting it. And so there's those types of things to where how do we help veterans with counseling? That would be an idea of individual community development. There is a, 
I don't even think it's a ministry. I just think it's people that got together and figured out if they can have veterans come and help coach little kids' things. There's a need for coaches in communities, and there's a need for these guys to somehow connect and do something productive, and they've been able to, to do this thing. I think that's a really great thing. And the last one would be advocacy, uh, you know, for veterans' rights. And again, I'm not preaching about, oh, we need to do this stuff as much as this would be an example because in a lot of cases, you know, we cheer, cheer on veterans at sporting events and we do these things, but in the day-to-day life, a lot of veterans are really just struggling, not just to make ends meet, to stay alive. And so that would be an example how a person, a small group, um, a church could come alongside something in a community. And I don't know this community, I don't know anything about it as far as this. That would be an example of providing tangible, material, acts of guardian redemption to a group of people who live on the margins and who, for a lot of them, may live on the margins, not of their own doing. It's just how life has shaped them. Here would be another example, and these are some things that I've done before we wrap this up. And again, I'm not saying you got to do this stuff, just examples of how a Christian, a group of Christians at church did this stuff. In our church, we had a preschool, and, in, and I was in the state of New Jersey right outside of Philadelphia at that time. And in that state, they dedicated 30 poor cities to have free public preschool. And the reason was that if the moms in those cities went out to work, they wouldn't be able to make enough money to pay for the child care. And so they said, we're just going to have it there so we can send the moms out to work instead of just collecting a check, and we're going to provide these kids with education or find in these cities. The kids by kindergarten were already like a year and a half behind academically, socially, and emotionally. So we partnered with the school district, and we housed a public school. And in that particular school, in our particular neighborhood, half of the kids didn't speak English, which meant probably 80% of the parents didn't. That, that was the population that we had. So one way that we provide a relief is we found people who knew Spanish and English, and they went alongside the parents at parent-teacher meetings and at district events so that when they needed stuff for their kids, they could actually have the conversation because prior to that, it wasn't provided. We just provided a simple friend who went along and translated. And it was very helpful, helped us build relationships. What do we do on individual development? A lot of the kids would always fall behind because little kids trying to learn one language is tough. They're trying to learn two, Spanish at home, English in school. And so what we did, we gathered parents that were interested and we taught them how to teach their kids. But they're like, we don't know English. It doesn't matter. We want to teach language acquisition. So read to your kids. Well, we don't know English. Read to them in Spanish. It doesn't matter because the skill is language acquisition. And then we can translate later. And so they bought into it. We did it. And the argument was this. If I, as a white guy, and these are, these are the stereotypes we worked with, and as a white guy, um, if I uh, um, read to my kid for an hour a day, and the lady who um, uh, doesn't speak English doesn't read at all, after 10 years, whose kid's going to be better at reading? Mine. Is it because I'm white? And, and she's brown? No, that's not the reason. It's because we spent time doing it. So if I spent an, uh, an hour playing soccer, or never played soccer with my kid, and she spent an hour every day playing, who's going to be better at 10 years old? Well, is it her because she's from a country where everybody plays soccer? No, it's because she spent time practicing. And so we would teach these things to, to help parents engage with their kids. The last one was, this, this next one with community development, we actually transformed our program to help the Spanish-speaking kids learn English faster. And what did we do? We hired a bunch of Spanish-speaking moms to be assistants in the classroom. The first half of the year was Spanish only, because the belief was if we could teach them language, ex- uh, uh, language acquisition, that would be something you probably need to pronounce right, language acquisition, math skills and all these things in Spanish, then the second half of the year we can spend the time translating. They learned this stuff so well. After we did this a couple years, 
that our school district came because our test scores for language acquisition were higher than the other schools that didn't have Spanish. They accused us of cheating. That was how good these kids were doing. They bypassed all the services, and we got this figured out, and they accused us of cheating. They accused us of running an illegal bilingual program. We're like, man, the kids are learning English. The parents are learning English. We're having a great time. So we were able to do those things, which led to the last one, advocacy. Hey, we need to show up at the school district and support these families. Because we're doing something here, and they're, they're trying to squelch it. Part of that led into, we were able to go from 30, uh, this organization, we were able to go from 30 of these preschools to 90 in a couple years because they were helping kids catch up academically, emotionally, and socially. So we, uh, we got to be the guardian redeemers of these young kids um, at a very young age to help them uh, catch up before they got so far behind. There, there wasn't any way to catch up. So those would be a couple examples of how we as a group of people were able to help the Ruths and their kids in a very practical, everyday way. As to methods, there is a million, and then some, but principles are few. The man, the woman, the church who grasps principles can successfully select his own methods. And so the idea here is that we're not going to be doing the leveret marriages. We're not marrying our sister-in-laws. Not having kids for them. But how do we take this concept of Old Testament since the beginning redemption and apply that theme to whoever would be considered a Ruth? It could literally be a widow, it could literally be somebody from another country, or it could be figuratively somebody who's just on the margins. Several years after my disastrous attempt at college, experienced a call to ministry, which I was fine with. But there was one contingent that I didn't know what to do with. Guess what that was? To be clergy, you got to go to college. My defense was, I don't think the disciples went to college, which did not fly at the ordination. (laughs) Oh, man, I had to do college. Now, at that time, my English was very poor. Um... I know where to put commas now. Um, semicolons, colons, still a little spotty on. I still can't add up uh, in my head. I can't make change. I can't uh, add my Yahtzee score. You don't want me to be a banker monopoly. It just isn't possible. I can't remember. I can't do phone numbers right. I can't enter my credit card number. I, all, it just, I don't have it in me to do that. But the thing was is I thought I was uh, not just stupid in that area because that's such a dominant theme. Come to the conclusion that I'm stupid in all areas. So the question is, am I going to pursue this call even though I have to go through the pains of college? And so I bumped into this program that was a Nazarene program that was helping pastors kind of do it on ramp to get into college classes and that kind of stuff and get credits, non-college credits, but they were were credits to pursue ordination. And I had this one professor, he came up alongside of me, he said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Now, if your school experience was like mine, a professor who says, hey, can I talk to you for a second means one thing. That's the end of this. Now, I'm in trouble, and I'm probably done the program. But here's what he said to me. He said, Brian, you need to pursue master's education because you are off the chart smart, and you don't know it. Now, you would think that would sound like a great compliment, right? But if you've lived your whole life being, being dumb and, and, and creating strategies to hide that, um, 
or finding ways you can live that out without being exposed, somebody saying that to you is actually scary and painful. And he said, this, this stuff is going to be too easy. It's not going to prepare you because your mind thinks at a different level, a different way, and, and it's just different. You're just smart a different way than everybody else. And then he said this. He goes, you, you probably need to pursue a doctorate. You're that smart. Now, that sounds crazy to somebody who I, I don't think of myself that way. He was my guardian redeemer. He, he, he saw something in me that nobody in my life, parents, teachers, no one, and he snatched me up and, and, and said, um, you got it, man. You can do this. He redeemed me from I don't know what my life would have been like. Guess what I get to do now as part of my job? This won't come as a big shocker. I'm a professor for Nazarene pastors who... Didn't do well in college. Maybe didn't go to college. And I've been asked by the district who don't know, this is the first time I've ever told this story uh, out loud. They asked me, hey, could you create a, a plan or a program to help pastors who maybe it's a later in career, people called to the ministry, they don't know what to do. They're out of the box, on the margins. Do you think you could create a couple classes to be an on-ramp to help these out? Could I? I've been thinking about it for like 30 years. And so what I've noticed in my own life and in the lives of others is a lot of times the stuff that God redeemed us out of is the very thing uh, that somewhere along that we can help redeem another person. Whether that's giving a fish, teaching a fish, giving them fishing poles or helping them get Lego access to it. And so the question is, if you've been redeemed and you've been redeemed out of stuff spiritually, emotionally, physically, culturally, racially, whatever the context would be, financially, is God whispering to you today that maybe that might be the venue of ministry to be a guardian redeemer to the one who is struggling with that this very moment? God redeems his people. And his plan is that his people become agents of redemption. Redemption. 